According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Proverbs 18, and we're looking at verses 1 through 9, the first portion of the chapter, a significant stretch of verses whereby we see a lot of ugly things. Uh, There's a lot of... uh, unfortunate things, and yet that's what it is. It's the world we live in, and we live in a world of darkness, we live in a world of sinners, and we have to have wisdom to uh, first of all understand what they're all about, and then uh, to protect ourselves, because we don't want to become partakers with them and participate in those kind of things. Also, we realize that we are vulnerable to acting exactly the same way if we aren't, uh, if our thinking is not shaped by the Word of God. That if uh, just because we're saved doesn't mean we can't do those things. We can do those things if we are stop uh, living the Word of God, if we, if we stop thinking divine viewpoint. And a believer can commit any sin that an unbeliever can commit. And it just it bothers me when I hear believers deny that, or they say that, oh, no, no, there's, there's certain sins and they're so bad that somebody that does that must not be saved. No, that's, that's a fallacy, that's wrong that uh, any believer can do any sin because we're all sinners saved by grace. And that's the, that's the truth of it there. So as we look at these verses, let's just uh, realize that uh, you know, he who is spiritual can restore such a one, but it's with a spirit of gentleness looking to ourselves too, lest we, lest we also be tempted. And so that's the admonishment we get from, uh, from Galatians 6. All right, let's open the word of prayer and ask our Father for his blessing upon our time and his truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in this day, Father, and all that you have designed it for. We humble ourselves before you, thankful for your faithfulness and divine guidance, Father, that you lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we saw... Last week, or maybe two weeks ago now, when did we start this chapter? Was it just last week? Uh, Chapter 18 begins with nine verses of social dysfunction. It's bad enough when you have one person uh, who's a fool, uh, one person that's uh, not applying wisdom, and of course one person not applying wisdom is going to harm himself, of course, but he harms more than himself. And it's more than just one person, because... None of us, uh, you know, no man is an island, as somebody said, that we all interact with others, that we all have an impact, whether we want to or not, that uh, none of us was born alone. We had a mother, we had a father involved in that. We have, we're connected, all right? We're connected biologically, we're connected socially, we're connected in our culture, in our nation, uh, and of course as church age saints, we're connected in our congregation, we're connected in our church family. And so um, personal dysfunction becomes social dysfunction uh, automatically. I mean, it just happens with those that we interact with socially. And if you get enough folks that that are personally dysfunctional, then you've got an entire society that becomes dysfunctional. And, uh, and I think we see this, uh, it, just, it just magnifies, it rolls downhill very quickly. So he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. And so this is a he-who, similar to the he-whos that we dealt with at the end of chapter 17. And it could be you, it could be any of us, that, uh, that there would be a tendency on the part of um, humans that you just get mad or you get uh, fed up and you just get decide that that's I've had enough and enough is enough and I'm out of here. And so you separate yourself. And you either decide to just go it alone and be a hermit, or you decide to, uh, you know, that there's greener pastures across the fence or whatever else you decide to do. But why are you separating when God has not separated you? Why are you separating when God has placed you here? If, uh, if, if you're going to separate rather than run with endurance the race that's set before you, now you're defying the will of God on, on several different levels. And so that's the, uh, the impact of that. 
A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. We'll see that today as well. More social dysfunction. And uh, rather than learning humbly before uh, the Lord and learning the Word of God, uh, you're more interested in telling others what you think and uh, bestowing your wisdom upon society because obviously you're God's gift to whoever and you feel like they need to, uh, they need to learn uh, what you have to say. And really you should just slow down and learn what God has to say and then uh, take it from there. Verse 3, when a wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. And this is probably the toughest verse of the whole segment, uh, the whole nine-verse section. And uh, because uh, the vocabulary is is not pleasant, and, and seeing how they're connected together in the poetry, seeing how they're linked in two tandems, but really it's a it's a fourfold degeneracy, and we'll uh, we'll be there here shortly this morning. Uh, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters; the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. And uh, this too takes some work because it could be thought of in a positive way. And it could be um, really a, a, a beneficial verse. But because it sits in the middle of these nine verses where everything else is a problem, I think it's best to take this verse also as a problem. And uh, we'll be handling it that way when we get to, the, to that point. Showing partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. Uh, similar to some principles we had in chapter 17 when you're flipping justice on its head. Um, it's not good for your culture, it's not good for your society. So all of these are social dysfunctions. And uh, the, the combined total of these is, man, we've got a, we've got a city that's, that's in terrible shape, or we've got a state that's, that's uh, you know, uh, not, in, not in a good place, or a country. We've got a country that's so dysfunctional now that you've got uh, half the country that, that is uh, angry at the other half of the country. And, uh, and so partiality and, and judgments get affected because of that. Verse 6, a fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. And uh, how quick do you go from, uh, from uh, discussion to violence? How quickly does, uh, does a conversation lend itself to the blows and uh, the strife that, uh, that it can produce? A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are the snare of his soul. And uh, the things that you regret saying, but you've said it so you can't take them back and now you're stuck. Now you're trapped like a bird in a snare. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. And it's like junk food and it tastes great. And, uh, you know, you like uh, those uh, little, uh, whatever they are, those little Werther uh, caramels, those little square caramels and man, you know, those are great, you know, but after 65 of them or so, you start to get a stomach ache, and you start to realize maybe that wasn't the best. Uh, that wasn't the best dinner. And as a metaphor, as a description related to um, what we really shouldn't be talking about anyway, the words of a whisperer. The fact is, is uh, we're talking about gossip and slander. We're talking about uh, the talebearer that's whispering these things and and spreading this strife and. Not an accident that uh, from verse 6 to verse 7 to verse 8 we have the verbal uh, degeneracy there. Then finally verse 9, the sluggard, he who is slack in his work. And uh, by virtue of being slack, it is destructive. It's self-destructive and it's societal. It has a sociological uh, destruction as well because um, you're not holding up your end. You're not contributing in the way that you should be contributing to the family, to the clan, to the tribe. We would say to the, to the neighborhood, to the city, to the state, to the country. Uh, are we productive and are we benefiting our culture or are we unproductive and are we a detriment to our culture? Because uh, we're either contributing towards uh, our, our uh, population or we are detracting from our population. And uh, <clears throat> that's what we deal with there. Okay, so if we can survive nine verses of uh, unpleasant things to learn about, then we get to verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. And so we, we get a positive verse. And we get uh, good positive verses, several of them, from uh, verse 10 
to the end of the chapter, and, and uh, including uh, the friend that sticketh closer than a brother, and um, the uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And so there's, there's uh, marvelous things we have to look forward to here in Proverbs 18. We just have to get through the first nine verses and uh, take it from there. All right. So last week we got started with the idea of separating yourself and looking at the Hebrew verb parad, P-A-R-A-D, separating yourself. And separating yourself from the community of faith, the community, what we would say the community of faith and wisdom, uh, more than just simply being in a faith community. Because if that faith community is not Uh, making the Word of God its priority, what good is it? What value is it? Israel was a faith community. They were a redeemed people. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. They didn't change their nature as a faith community. It didn't change their nature as a redeemed people. Uh, They were still God's possession. They were still expected to be holy, but they weren't living the Word of God. And they weren't uniting the promises, the covenant promises with faith. So they never entered into the land. They never arrived at rest. That with most of them they died in the wilderness. And so um, when we <coughs> talk about community of faith, I'm trying to take the Old Testament doctrine now and adapt it for our application because we are a community of faith and wisdom in terms of Austin Bible Church, but we would also be a community of faith and wisdom in our homes, a community of faith and wisdom uh, in our marriages, with our children, in our uh, families, and uh, then the benefit that we have to uh, to serve our neighborhoods, to serve our our uh, communities, uh, extends from that. And so uh, separation. Why am I separating? If I'm separating for the wrong reasons, uh, or even for the right reasons, there's going to be consequences. Every action has consequences. And so, even uh, when you separate for the right reasons, there is still an impact, and we want to know that impact. And and give that to the Lord as well, see, in uh, in different things, and that might be worth discussing also in uh, in that. But uh, most of these are negative in these verses that we look at here. So seeking his own desire, seeking his own desire, and that's what is stated in verse one: the one who separates himself seeks his own desire. And you realize if you're part of a community, then it's bigger than you, right? And and that starts with marriage. As soon as you're married, now that's a community of two. Okay? And as soon as you're a community of two, uh, you learn pretty quickly in your marriage that it's not all about you. And it's not all about your desire. And the things that you desire, you know, you realize, and, and if you are so centered on yourself and what you desire, how does that contribute to the to the marriage? How does that contribute to the community of two? Right, and so um, often, you know, one of the selfishness is a big marriage destroyer. And if you can't learn to overcome that, if you can't learn to esteem the other as more important than yourself, if you decide that your selfishness is your idol, then the the world's answer is just bail, goodbye, marriage, it's over, we're done. And uh, and so that's the that's the issue there. Uh, even larger than marriage, even within family, separation there. Again, where does selfishness come in when now you've got children in the picture, now you've got other folks? And uh, and so now there's that dynamic as well, where again, selfishness is destructive. The one child uh, realizes that he's not the center of the universe because he's got three siblings that, that uh, they also think they're the center of the universe. And, and now, you know, we got to learn to overcome this. And the answer is not separation. The answer is to learn to function within the community. See, and that's got to be trained young. It's got to be trained while they're children. See, because they got to learn that. A day will come that they will leave father and mother and be cleaved to one another and the two will become one flesh. Uh, and so they got to learn the lesson in childhood so they don't blow it in their own marriage. What else can we illustrate with? We've illustrated it with marriage, we've illustrated it with family, we can illustrate with uh, a local church, for example. And again, so, uh, selfishness will destroy a congregation quicker than anything, and, and uh, you can have tons of selfishness applications on the part of anybody in the church, you know, and, uh, and there too. So 
you know, uh, take your ball and go home. You know, just pout about it and, and you know, stomp your feet and decide that that uh, you're not happy with with the way a church does something or whatever. But you know, the fact is, you learn the lesson because this is where God has placed you. You're running with endurance the race that's set before you. You've been allotted to a shepherd's charge. You have a place that you belong in the will of God. And if there are elements there that that uh, your your humanity uh, doesn't appreciate, well, quit operating in your humanity. Start operating in your spirituality. Start operating in grace, and uh, and learn the lessons that uh, that we learn as we function together as a community of faith and wisdom. And uh, and selfishness has no part in that. And clearly, then the quarrels, uh, the selfishness leads to the quarrels, and and this is what we see here. Anyway, separation is often a death concept because death is a separation. And as we've been seeing the biblical examples of parad, um, we got about halfway through that slide. And I remember we looked at uh, Genesis 2, and uh, we looked at Genesis 10, and we looked at Genesis 13 when Lot had to separate from Abraham. And did we look at Genesis 25? I forget where we left off. A lot of times on Tuesday morning before I come to Proverbs, I uh, <laughs> I sit at home and I click on last week's MP3 and listen to the last five minutes just so I can remember where we stopped. And I failed to do that this morning. Genesis 25. Oh yes, we talked about nations being separated from your womb. And... Uh, when a nation is birthed and when a nation is separated, there's a principle there. And God's in charge of all of these separations. And some are right and some are not right. We've got to make sure if we're separating on a right basis that we're obedient to the Lord. And if we're separating on the wrong basis that uh, we're going to answer for that. Deuteronomy 32. I believe we looked at that as well. Second Samuel 1 we looked at because there's the separation of, of uh, Saul and Jonathan. They were not separated in their death. And of all the sadness that we have in life, uh, physical death is a separation whereby uh, humans will grieve. But believers uh, grieve because of the separation, but we don't grieve as the rest who have no hope because we recognize that the separation is only a short thing, that the separation is only a a temporary thing, and that very quickly we will be reunited again uh, with our loved ones in glory so long as, of course, we're talking about believers that have that, that hope. So uh, that's the separation of physical death in Second Samuel. There's the separation between Elijah and Elisha in Second uh, Kings chapter 2. And I remember we looked at that because that was the fiery uh, chariot and that was the, the separation whereby Elisha couldn't... Elisha was trying to stay as close to Elijah as he could because that was the, that was the deal that they struck, that he would get that double portion of his spirit but he had to see the departure, so he was sticking close that whole time. And then the uh, fiery chariot kind of made a separation there. But uh, Elisha still got the, the uh, double portion of the Spirit. And we have the issue there. Esther chapter 3, the Jewish people were a separate people. They were living as aliens and strangers among the Persians. And they were there not by their choice. They were, they were uh, taken away into captivity by the Assyrians. They were taken away into captivity by the Babylonians. And now uh, the Assyrians have been conquered. The Babylonians have been conquered. Now it's Persians that are in charge of that land, of that territory. It's now Persian territory. But they have Jewish people living in their midst. In fact, scattered across every province as far as that goes. So let's... Uh, Let's look at Esther 3, because you know when you have a people that are living as aliens and strangers, that's kind of what we're doing in the church age now, living as aliens and strangers. This world is not our home. But here is the wicked Haman that really hates the Jews, and he spotlights the fact that they are separate. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed, among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Now that is full of so many half-truths, you'd have to really boil it down, but 
They are, they do identify as a separate people. They're not in defiance of the king's laws, only on the occasions where the king's laws command them to disobey God's laws. So if, uh, if the king says, uh, you know, bow down and worship this statue, then they may disobey and they may get thrown into a fiery furnace. Uh, but if they do get thrown into a fiery furnace, uh, they're still subject to the, to the government that's over them. They're submitting to the fiery furnace. And um, different aspects there. Or the lion's den, for example. Uh, to be thrown in the lion's den. Um, doesn't mean that, maybe, well, because there's a king's law that violates God's law. And so a believer may choose to stay faithful to God's law. And while he remains in subjection to the governing authorities, he disobeys the, the law and so he faces the, the consequences, whether it's a lion's den or a fiery furnace or, or what have you. So, uh, anyway, these, I think these are principles of separation that we would do well to learn from as it relates to, uh, to this. So, um, this is where then uh, Haman talks the king into passing a law and they're going to send it out to all the uh, provinces. And um, if you haven't been here lately, there's so many things that are, that are, I think, valuable for us to glean from. In verse 12 it says, The king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the provinces of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language. See, the Jews weren't the only non-Persian people that were living there. They were clearly a, uh, an empire of, of many uh, racial groups, many people groups. And each of those people groups identified in their culture, in their uh, clans, in their, with their languages, but they didn't have sovereignty. They were subject to the, the Persian Empire. So this would have included Jews and and uh, Chaldeans and, and Babylonians and, and Assyrians and, and uh, just a whole smorgasbord of others and Medes and, and uh, Persians and so forth. Each one according to its script. Each people according to its language. And you see if you're going to be a multi-linguist, multi-ethnic um, empire then you've got complications that uh, God did not design when He separated the peoples by their language at Babel. And this is the price you pay for becoming an empire. You, uh, you may have Satan's promotion, but you have God's discipline. Anyway, so letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to uh, destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. Now here's the thing though, because of, their, um, because of their superstition and because of their uh, practices, he couldn't do it immediately. He had to uh, cast lots. He had to draw, you know, at, at random, theoretically at random, God's in charge of it, uh, as far as what day would be selected for the Jewish uh, execution day. And uh, the decree uh, that, that uh, happens here, it says the 13th day of the 12th month which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. And so, wow, well that gives you time, doesn't it? (laughs) Why so late? Why does it take so long? Well, because God in His grace is sovereign over the timing of everything. And He permits that delay because He's going to work through Esther, He's going to work through Mordecai, He's going to work through, He's going to give them time for their own personal self-defense. Are they going to be able to arm themselves for personal self-defense? Because that's a God-given right. And uh, so many other things that we can teach in this one chapter. All right, well, I guess the last thing I'll say related to this is in chapter 4. And uh, this comes with, in, in terms of Mordecai's exhortation to Esther is that Mordecai believes she is exactly where she needs to be in the plan of God. And uh, if she thinks she can escape, she needs to think again. So uh, verse 13 of chapter 4, 
Mordecai replies to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. So if you blow it in your work assignment as before the Lord, that doesn't thwart God's plan. Because He's omniscient, He knows you're going to blow it. But He's still, so he'll, uh, he'll assign somebody else to come and take your crown. Somebody else will accomplish what you fail to accomplish. Doesn't change the fact that you were the one He originally designed to do it. So you will face consequences. Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. You and your father's house will perish. In other words, the thing you hope to escape, that's God's judgment upon you. And who knows whether you have not been attained royalty for such a time as this. Do you ever consider that God put you where He put you because He wants you there for this moment? And uh, don't think that, uh, you know, well, you know, you won the beauty pageant so you became queen and that's because you can brag in that? Are you kidding me? He put you there so you could save His people. And uh, these are the principles we glean out of, out of the book of Esther. Alright, well there's enough of that. Over to Job, Job 41. Why did I want to show you this one? I don't remember. Oh, because I like dragons. <laughs> okay. And uh, the armor on this dragon is so tight, the strong scales, they are joined one to another, they clasp each other and cannot be separated. They cannot be separated. And it doesn't really have much of an application for us today, but I just like looking at the dragon and it's a good verse. But it's the idea of separation, all right? But even think about this passage. When there is separation, what does that, what does that do? If there was, say, a, a, a tear in the dragon's armor, if the scales did start to pull away from each other, well, that leaves a vulnerability, does it not? So in a sense, even this passage serves to illustrate for us the vulnerabilities that happen because of separations. That when there are separations, that opens up things for injury, that opens up things for hurt, for other uh, trouble down the road. Anyway, read the rest of Job 41, you see a great description of Leviathan, the, uh, the fearsome fire-breathing dragon. Jesus spoke of this in the prophetic proclamation of Psalm 22. David, of course, wrote it a thousand years before Christ, but they're the words of Christ. It's the portrayal of the cross from the first person perspective. I am poured out like water, all my bones are separated, out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. And uh, the pain of that there. And then the rest of these are all in Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 28, 17, 9. The rest of these are all Proverbs applications of parad. Proverbs 16, 28. My phone again. I'm so sorry. All right. Never go car shopping on a Tuesday because the salesman is going to text you a hundred times the next morning when you're in church. Or Saturday. Don't go car shopping on Saturday. Because, well, maybe the salesman's off on Sunday if the lot's closed on Sunday. He'll probably still text you, though. All right. His name is Warren. Can you believe that? How many Warrens do you know? All right. Proverbs 16.28. A perverse man spreads strife and a slander separates intimate friends. Remember this? We called it friendship death. We talked about what happens with the sins of the tongue, with a slander and how hurtful it is and uh, how God hates the separation of this. It's the, this the most detestable thing of the six things, even seven, that are an abomination to the Lord is the one that spreads strife among brothers. And uh, to, to uh, produce this kind of friendship and death, to produce this kind of separation. It's, uh, I mean, it's the oldest tactic in the world is the divide and conquer mentality. And if you can drive a wedge between two brothers, Satan thinks it's great. 
And uh, because brothers are always stronger when they're praying together, when they're uh, when they're reinforcing one another, and and we uh, were armored up and on the wall. What a what a joy! And so, uh, to separate that is uh, exactly what Satan wants to do. Seventeen nine: He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. And we'll deal with this again when we get down to the whisperer in chapter eighteen, but. The idea is you learn about something and you've got to decide in your priesthood, in your maturity, if you're going to function in love or not. And you're going to decide whether love is going to cover a multitude of sins, uh, whether you're going to have the discretion to love your brother and pray for him and, uh, and not go around as a talebearer, or are you going to lick your chops and rub your hands and race off to tell the first person you can about this juicy morsel that you just tasted and uh, you can't wait to be the first to break the news because there's a little carnal thrill if you're the one that gets to spill the beans, if you're the one that gets to be the source of the... uh, And so that's why they always hurry to try to outdo the other one in getting this news spread as fast as possible. So, obviously the Lord is hostile to that. Uh, 18.1, also verse 18 of the same chapter. The cast lot puts an end to strife and decides between the mighty ones. And we've got to deal with that. That's in a different context in terms of, you know, flip a coin and decide. Uh, in, in a sense, when, uh, when Abraham did separate from Lot, that was positive on Abraham's part because Abraham was told to do that. And so, and he gave Lot the choice and Lot went to the right. So Abraham went to the left and uh, Lot ended up in Sodom and Gomorrah. Can you imagine? What if Abe, what if Lot had chosen the left? He said, well, you know, I want the hill country. Where would Abraham have been? Abraham would have been in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then think about it. Because Jesus said, you know what? Abraham could have had a ministry there. Abraham could have done those Capernaum miracles. Sodom and Gomorrah might have remained to this day according to what Jesus prophesied in Matthew chapter 11. Anyway, Uh, Casting lots, we talked about in an earlier chapter, every decision comes from the Lord, that every flip of a coin, every roll of the dice, everything that we think is random is is, falls within the sovereignty of God and His grace eternal plan. Every decision comes from God. And so um, if you decide that you are going to leave it in God's hands and surrender it to the sovereignty of God, that's, uh, that's a good way to deal with it. That's a good way to deal with it. Leave it in the hands of God's sovereignty to decide between the mighty ones, to separate the mighty ones. Anyway, there's more work to do on that. We'll get there. Chapter 19 and verse 4. Wealth adds many friends. You know, Win the lottery and find out how many friends you have. You'll have more than you ever even knew you had. You'll have some brand new ones too that will convince you that they've been there for all this time. Uh, wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate. And you think you have a friend until the tough time comes along and you realize he wasn't such a friend after all. How about that? And there's a separation that happens there. And it's, again, Proverbs is not uh, always pleasant, but it's describing the world we live in. It's describing the, the the realities of, of being, you know, human beings in a fallen world. So we want to function with wisdom appropriately. Now, the second part of verse 1 shows us, though, a progression. Separation is usually not enough. Separation is only the first step. Very frequently, separation is followed up with bare-teethed uh, hostility. Avoidance soon becomes bare-teethed hostility. And when you go from the A part to the B part of verse 1 there, there's the the self-separation because of selfishness, seeking his own desire. And look how it leads to the quarrels. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. And it might be, you might imagine that very shortly soon after the separation might come a a brother that says, hey we miss you. How How you doing? What's going on? Um, you know, can I bring you back to Bible class? What's going on? And 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 what happens then? Because that uh, the darkness is not repented of because of the uh, hostility that just grows and gets worse. 
is the uh, the baring of the teeth, the snarling, the growling. It's kind of a little bit idiomatic and from the, the Hebrew on this, but you know, um, you realize, ooh, they're not coming back. Not anytime soon. <laughs> wow. And you realize there's bigger issues to be praying for. And uh, and so forth. And in, in a church context, it's curious to me how many believers aren't simply content to keep keep quiet, you know, pack up their tent, move out in grace. Uh, it's, it's curious to me how many in bitterness want to take others with them. They're not content to simply separate. They want another dozen or so to separate with them. Or if they could take half, they could split the church, take half of them with them. Uh, that's, that's even better. And uh, so you end up with bare teeth hostility in what could have been at least maybe a quiet separation has now become a full-scale church split, become a full-scale schism in, uh, in different ways. So that's not good. <laughs> All right. Well, enough on verse 1. Verse 2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. So here's more social dysfunction. A guy who is a fool and yet thinks he's the smartest guy around. Uh, Folks with closed minds often have open mouths. (laughs) And uh, yeah, folks with closed minds often have open mouths. And it's, it's interesting because they end up exposing the nakedness. They've got a naked soul. They've got a naked heart. And they expose it to everybody. There's an exposure there. Only in revealing his own mind. That's what he's all about. He wants, he's a, it's like a, like a flasher or a, an exhibitionist. In uh, someone that gets a perverse kind of a thrill for uh, displaying his nakedness, these uh, these guys uh, they've got naked souls, naked hearts, and yet uh, they they want to they want to spout whatever they think uh, they want you to know. Anyway, it comes up in different applications throughout Proverbs here. It's verse 2, and then it gets expanded more in verses 6 and 7. A fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. You know, you think, why are you even talking? Why, uh, you've got nothing to say, nothing worthwhile anyway, nothing that's edifying, nothing that's coming from the Lord or from His Word. But boy, they, uh, they've got the biggest mouths around. Same thing in verse 7, it's bringing you to ruin. You're ruining others. You're ruining yourself. Can you just shut up already? Uh, just quiet your your heart. Quiet your mouth. Humble yourself before the Lord. You need a season of repentance. You need a season of recovery. Uh, at this point, um, yeah, because you're you're bringing about ruin. It's the snare of your soul. But uh, really, is this the first time we've encountered this? Of course not. Back to chapter 12, back to chapter 13, back to chapter 15, we find that this, uh, this, this nonstop satanic communication, it is what it is. Proverbs 12, 23. And I wonder how much of this is... Um, part of what happens when God's perfect design gets perverted. The fact is God is a, cre- uh, is a communicator and we are made in the image of God. We are designed to be communicative and it's just the nature of sin and the nature of fallen humanity whereby since we are designed to be communicative, we end up, that gets perverted. So we end up uh, with, uh, with uh, perverted communication and we end up with uh, the sins of the tongue, and we end up with the uh, and, and Satan has room to work with on that because Satan's also a communicator; he's a slanderer, and so he wants to work through us as we're designed to be communicators. And I think these things—it's uh, just the nature of it. So in in Proverbs twelve twenty three, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Just out there proclaiming it, shouting it like a priest, uh, shouting it like a, uh, a preacher, making that proclamation. 
shouting the folly. Chapter 13 and verse 16. Closed minds and open mouths. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. Just lays it out there. It's on display. It's exposed to everybody. Chapter 15 and verse 2. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. When does it stop? You know, the shame of their naked heart is exposed to everyone. And it's, uh, it's really kind of curious to me. Do we need to go look at Noah in Genesis 9? We're going to see Noah on Sunday in uh, Hebrews 11. But Noah got drunk after the, uh, the flood. They got off the ark, they start settling, and, and he gets drunk. He plants a vineyard. And um, anyway, the shame of his nakedness was, uh, well, there was an incident with his youngest son, Ham. And uh, the language is a little circumspect. Um, but the shame of his nakedness. And then Shem and Japheth were humble. They were uh, cautious they uh, they blessed their father, even as Haman, uh, even as Ham, uh, cursed his father, and it's it's an ugly, ugly story. But essentially, he got drunk and he exposed himself. It's one of the uh, terms that's used, and it's the same expression we have here in Proverbs eighteen, the idea of the naked heart being exposed. Nakedness carries with it shame. And, uh, and it has ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin. Only before they became sinners could you be naked and unashamed. Adam and Eve, and, and there's doctrine in that. There's, there's principles to learn with respect to that. And so, really, this verse here in verse 2, in revealing, <laughs> in uh, flashing your naked heart, um, your, uh, your foolish mind, it's uh, it's horrible. It's a horrible thing. Until you start to accumulate people that love that. Because just as you're perverted for the exposure, there's other people that are also perverted. They will enjoy the exposure. And then you can find your mutually compatible sin natures to pursue the uh, the darkness even further. All right, well, there's that. Let's talk about how it degenerates. And this is verse 3. When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes. So he has a personal uh, wickedness. He is failing to, uh, to live in personal wisdom. And beyond that is the impact that he has in his culture, in his community. So uh, there is contempt. There is a price to be paid, and he's paying the price personally, but society is also paying the price. And that comes about with this contempt. That comes about with this um, uh, display. Okay, So here's verse 3. Public wickedness generates a degenerative sequence of public harm. And we're going to see this chain from contempt to dishonor to scorn, and each one is intensified. Each one gets worse, and um, particularly when it's embraced, when the individual laughs at the scorn, when the individual wears it proudly, when the community wears it proudly, when the nation wears it proudly, when they start to uh, thrive in the contempt, their glory is in their shame, we're told. And, and that's just a, a, a description of, uh, of the woe that comes when you call good evil and evil good. When, when rebellion and sin against God is def- in open defiance against what God has designed and celebrating it. And so, uh, you know, we have a, a verse that's pretty vivid in describing uh, the course of things and, and where our country is now. So, uh, when a wicked man comes, contempt also comes. And this is why, for the reasons for self-protection, you have to remove the wicked one from among yourselves. This is why, uh, because it will spread. You have to remove. If, if, uh, if there is a, a believer in this flock and they continue to live in open wickedness, 
We cannot accept that. We must deal with him. We want to rebuke him and we want to bring him to the point of repentance and we want to, we hopefully uh, in, in church discipline he will repent and we've won our brother. But if he doesn't listen eventually what has to happen, we, we go through the steps, that wicked man has to be removed. If we don't remove him then, uh, then we poison the whole flock. We, we put everybody at risk. And this is uh, the whole doctrine there that we studied in Corinth. Corinth did not remove the man of incest, and they should have. And then after he repented, they didn't restore him. So they, they actually failed twice. And uh, they failed to bring him back when he was repentant. And so uh, that's why we have 1 Corinthians, and that's why we have 2 Corinthians, because of their double failure in, uh, in these kind of applications. All right. Well, booze. The Hebrew word booze is our word for contempt. Booze, B-U-W-Z. And um, yeah, we got Uzi and Boozy. We've got other, uh, the land of us and the land of buzz. There was buzz from the land of us. And some of these, uh, you can learn this vocabulary and have some fun with it. But um, there's also uh, uh, a pastor I know and Buzz is his nickname. Which uh, just cracks me up. All, I mean, I just I don't know um, if he's familiar with his Hebrew vocabulary or not, but I suspect he is. He's <laughs> been in ministry a while, but he got this ministry. He got this nickname in the Marine Corps, so I think he's stuck with it um, as far as it goes. But booze, uh, I guess we pronounce it with a long U sound. So booze. It's used eleven times in the. Uh, in the Old Testament, and some of the times God Himself is is contempt, is is uh, holding people in contempt. God Himself will mock. God Himself will scorn, and uh, and so it's not it's not a sin to scorn. In fact, public scorn is useful as a shame mechanism that wakes the person up to realize, hmm, I shouldn't be doing that. It's a social cue that uh, that can impact morals and, and behavior and so forth, and it's designed to do just that. But there can be a terrifying component to it that, uh, that God designed it to function that way. So um, let's see here, Job 31 illustrates this. Job 31. In describing his uh, circumstances here, he has a lot of ifs that aren't true, things he hasn't done. Had he done them, then he would expect to be under God's discipline. But since he hasn't done them, he uh, he views God's actions as being entirely wrong. And uh, one of the things he realizes is that he has not done these things. So when you read chapter one and, and or chapter thirty-one, and you see all of these ifs, he hasn't done it. So if in verse five I've walked with falsehood, haven't done that. If my step has turned from the way, verse seven, I haven't done that. Verse nine, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, haven't done that. All these things are have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, haven't done that. And. Uh, Verse 13, if I've despised the claim of my male or female slaves, haven't done that. He was righteous towards his slaves. A perfect and blameless man was a slave owner. If I have kept the poor from their desire, haven't done that. Or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, haven't done that. All these things I haven't done. Verse 19, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, haven't done that. If I've lifted my hand against the orphan, haven't done that. And we, we all agree, these are all terrible things. And if you do any of these things, it reflects that you're not, you know, uh, shaped by God's wisdom or living out a godly walk in, in Scripture. Verse 24, if I've put my confidence in gold and called gold, find gold my trust, haven't done that. If I have gloated, haven't done that. If I have looked at the sun, haven't done that. Verse 29, have I rejoiced in the uh, extinction of my enemy? Haven't done that. So we have this long list of things here. Now, 
verse uh, 33, have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? He says, I'm not putting on fig leaves. I'm not hiding anything. I've done nothing wrong. But have I done this? Because I feared the great multitude, because I feared the contempt or the contempt of families terrified me. And this is the, 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 the nature of what public shame can do. This is what public contempt can do. Booze, the Hebrew word booze, public contempt can be terrifying. So you can, uh, because of shame, because of public shame, you could fear the great multitude. You could fear, ooh, what happens if Austin Bible Church finds out? Ooh, what happens if Austin Bible Church finds out that uh, I mean that my my reputation is shot, my image is destroyed, and and there's a fear. If you're making that your idol, that's a problem. Okay. But if it's a, if it's a, a healthy fear that wakes you up to a sin whereby you say, wait a minute, what am I doing? I can't do this. That would destroy my marriage. That would destroy my family. That would destroy my ministry. That would destroy my soul. That's wrong in the sight of the Lord. Then there's a healthy trigger. There's a healthy response. All right. So, uh, and it's grounded in the fear of the Lord. Then the contempt of families terrifies me. And so I kept silent and did not go out of doors. You can become so terrified of public opinion that you never go anywhere. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> okay? And it can be. It can be a controlling thing. It can be, it can, it can be life devastating. In uh, in those things, and uh, yeah, even back in Job's day, this was recognized as being as powerful as it is. Genesis thirty eight twenty three, another example. Judah says, "Ooh, um, he uh, he frequented a uh, prostitute." And uh, didn't know it was his own uh, daughter-in-law. And um, yeah, didn't know it was his own daughter-in-law. Where am I headed for? 3823? Okay. So the harlotry with Tamar is earlier in the chapter. And... um, in verse 16, he says, Here now let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And uh, he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Okay. You know, I left my wallet at home. I can't pay cash. <laughs> Whatever. Um, well, will you give me a pledge until you send it? So what pledge shall I give you? She said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. Now when he tries to get his checkbook back, I mean, the, the, this is like his driver's license and his, his debit card. Uh, I understand uh, his seal. I mean, she could, she could sign forged documents in his name and, and apply his seal and all kinds of stuff here. So she arose and departed, removed her veil, put on her widow's garments. See, she wasn't really a prostitute. She was just acting as one. Um, so Judah sent uh, the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite. Some friend. <laughs> you know, I mean, do you have the kind of friend that can get you in trouble and get you out of trouble and, and uh, you know, keeps things quiet that need to be kept quiet? Why do you have that kind of friend? You know, you want to have a friend that really keeps you out of trouble and doesn't keep his mouth quiet because he chews you out that because uh, he speaks God's wisdom. That's the kind of friend you want, not the uh, Adulamite friend here. But he sends his uh, friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, but he couldn't find her. 
So he starts asking around the men of her place, saying, where is the temple prostitute who is by the road at Enaim? And they said to him, there's no temple prostitute here. It's the wrong neighborhood. There's, you know, what do you think this is? Uh, you know, there's every town's got streets that are famous for whatever. And uh, this is the wrong part of town. What are you talking about? So he returned to Judah and said, I didn't find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, uh, there's no, been no temple prostitute here. So Judah said, well, let her keep them. Otherwise, and here's our term, it's the laughing stock. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. Now, who's the we? <laughs> you know, you ever wonder that? I mean, Judah had sex with a prostitute. Who's the we? Well, it's more than just him. He realized that if this gets exposed, the we very quickly is it's him, it's his wife, it's his children, it's his brethren, it's his clan, it's uh, the Adulamite, it's, I mean, there's others associated with, and then who knows? Again, when's the other shoe going to drop? I mean, what is she going to do with that seal? Um, I mean, she didn't disappear for no reason. What's happening here? He's kind of in a bad spot. The idea of being a laughing stock, though, and a plural laughing stock, is, uh, is no laughing matter. It can be terrifying. It can really shape. Uh, Satan will use guilt and shame for all kinds of things. He will use guilt and shame. Oh, you, want, you don't want anybody to find out about this? All right, then. And so now what are you going to do to keep it quiet? Now what are you going to do? And you find that you did one sin that you're ashamed of, and now you're doing a second sin and a third sin and all kinds of things. You don't want to do them, but you don't want to get exposed. And it's, it's powerful. Now, <laughs> what's worse than that is the kind of wickedness that just embraces the shame. That finds that uh, the defense mechanism against allowing shame to control you is you, you own it. And you just embrace it. And you say, you know, there's nothing to it. You have no power over me because I'm not afraid of exposure. Because I'm embracing the shame. I'm celebrating the shame. And instead of freeing you from that, uh, instead of being a slave to the threat of exposure, now you're a double slave because now you're totally enslaved to this sin uh, for what it is. And that's, uh, that's the indication then, not only do we have it in Proverbs 18.3, uh, that we also have it in uh, Psalm 31.18, Psalm 123. There's just the boasting about these things that, uh, that shouldn't be there. Psalm uh, 31.18. Like I say, we, we dealt with this in uh, Philippians 3. If you were with us in the Philippians series, uh, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame. And so you end up with a belly idol of uh, whatever appetite you're, uh, you're feeding there. So, um, verse 17 of Psalm 31 says, Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent. Let the lying lips be mute, which they speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. See, they're just sold out. They are so sold out in their pride and contempt that they're mocking the righteous for being righteous. As if that's something that's contemptible. So they are embracing it. They're taking ownership of it. Likewise, Psalm 123. I've got to close with this. Psalm 123, verses 3 and 4. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. For we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. 
So we find that these adversaries are totally embracing the, uh, the scorn which should be directed towards them. And instead they're directing it towards the godly. They're directing it towards God's children in, uh, in the way that they do that. Well, woe to those that call good evil and evil good when it's the contemptible con- holding us in contempt. Hey, take it to the Lord and pray over it and uh, count yourself blessed that uh, so they treated our Savior, so they treat us. Say thank you, Father. I do thank you, Father, for these verses. I pray that you help us get through these unpleasant nine verses. And uh, thank you for Proverbs. Thank you for the wisdom that describes this this dark world for what it is. And um, the uh, perspective, the eternal perspective that your word gives us to keep our eyes fixed on you and to be uh, walking in wisdom now, uh, preparing ourselves for all eternity. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.